need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line as always, it's Anna Greenwald! Hey! Hey! Today on The Watch, it's Thursday in America and we are going to be talking about Quibi, the end of Quibi. We're going to be talking about the end of the third day. We'll also hit a bunch of other pop culture topics. Let's get into the show after this word. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com watch. That's mintmobile.com watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. That one's for Quibi. Wow. The short form video platform is gone. It's winding down production. Andy, I got to tell you, I spent the, the, a little bit of time here today listening to an episode of The Watch from April when you and Did I you? started talking about Quibi as it's, it was launching. And uh-huh. uh, here we find ourselves in late October. And after just seven months, the service is going to be shutting down. And it's a big story because even if we haven't really talked about a lot of the shows, which I think is indicative of the mindshare that Quibi eventually had, over uh, the larger TV audience. I think it's a, you know, a, a very interesting business story. And I thought we could lead our conversation by talking about it. What are your sort of initial reactions to this? Well, first of all, you got to respect their commitment to the short form, whether it's a serialized television show or it's just, you know, a time in existence sure. as a functioning company. You get in and you get out. You know, I think that that's... That's not something to be mad at. I think was that, that, was that just Siri downloading Quibi for you? Yeah. <laughs> Siri really woke up. I didn't even think I had that turned on, but some combination of me saying the words Katzenberg and uh, market cap <laughs> caused my phone to just wake up. Um, look, I, I, I think that it will be hopefully amusing to our legions of listeners that we, when this podcast is done, we'll have committed 100% more time to talking about Quibi than any of its programming. Mm-hmm. I think that that's remarkable, and I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us for our commitment to that bit as well. Let, let's, start, let's start here. 
I don't think anybody is surprised. And that's what has always felt so strange about this. From the moment it was announced that Jeffrey Katzenberg was going to cape up and, and cake up and basically reinvent storytelling for the mobile phone era mm-hmm. using his deep Rolodex of connections in the industry, I, I don't think anybody was particularly excited one way or another about this except Jeffrey Katzenberg, right? And I don't think anybody was necessarily convinced it was going to work. And talking to people in the industry and and people at studios who initially did business with them or took meetings or brought projects there, I have to say there was not a lot of optimism there either. I mean, people were eager to sell projects because that's the point. The the roster of people that they signed up remains, if not impressive in so much as like you you were like well this is going to be the, mm-hmm. the the new destination for the greatest visual storytelling you can find it's still an impressive like sure know, constellation of 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 A-list people it, it it just still comes down to the fact that and we talked about this when we when it launched it does feel like quibi was the answer to a question no one asked it mm-hmm. was a feathered fish it was something that wasn't filling a space in the marketplace that felt in need of filling and i think that Joe Adalian, who always writes so well about this at New York Magazine and Vulture, summed it up really well in, in his eulogy that, that that he wrote today, which is that, and I'm and I'm paraphrasing me, paraphrasing, kicking and screaming to paraphrase him. <laughs> there is an audience for quick bites of yes. filmed entertainment, yeah. and you know the the skateboarder with the ocean spray truck can attest to that, uh-huh. right? People want to watch stuff in that format. There is no evidence that they want to pay a subscription fee to watch superstars crammed into small boxes for eight minutes at a time. The barn doors are basically open, I think, for what we are culturally attuned to watch on our phones while in line at the ATM back when we used to line up for things. Yeah. And the proposition of the service was. This is stuff to watch while you're waiting in line, mm-hmm. while you wait for a train, while you have five to 10 minutes to spare. And that just turned out to be deeply flawed for a number of reasons, primarily because people are spending much less time waiting on lines, or if they are, well, they probably aren't like, I really want to watch a reboot of The Fugitive while I'm Well, doing let's this. circle back to that. I mean, there's the timing issue, which I think is worthy of, of, of some conversation. But what I mean is the queue, while you're queuing, was already full in a way that I don't think entrenched media billionaires like Katzenberg and Meg Whitman understood, Mm -hmm. which is to say that people have had smartphones in line or in commutes for years. And that time they used to scroll Instagram stories. They Mm -hmm. look at TikTok. They watch AOC play a video game that I'd never heard of until this week on Twitch. Or, you know, they watch, they watch Katie Porter eviscerate some stooge on now this, you know, that, that time is booked and you have to be pretty spectacular I think, yeah. to elbow your way in there. And if you think that you're competing just against them, you're not because you're also competing against the people who I personally will never understand, but the people who are like, oh, bet, I've got 90 seconds here. I can make it a little bit further into episode three of Stranger Things. Yeah. You have yeah. that too. Or rewatch so, it or or just have, have right. an ambient YouTube algorithm playlist kind of going. I think that there's two questions. There's the market it entered into, which was obviously wildly different than the one it was conceived of enter- entering into because of coronavirus and because of everything that was ha- that's happened this year. And then I think that they just didn't have any shows that broke through. 
and I did watch some Quibi stuff, and there was some Quibi stuff that I was actually curious about and and sounded like a pretty good premise, or perhaps if it had been a long-form show, it would have been something that it wound up. I mean, when the streetlights go on was something that I think that you and I both mentioned to each other. Like, that mm-hmm. sounds pretty cool. Uh, the Steven Soderbergh show, Wireless, I watched like an episode or two of and thought it was typical of the Steven Soderbergh executive. He executive produced it, but typically thoughtful in it, the way it was pushing the form of of storytelling really far. You know, some of it was taking place from the perspective of this kid who's trapped on a, on a mountain and the other is like all the people on his phone trying to find him, basically. So mm-hmm. it was like split, essentially like a kind of modern split screen storytelling. But when you go back and you see the announcement, and in April, you and I were a lot more like, hey, you know, maybe this will work out. And I do think that people do want shorter and shorter oh. Content. I was much more optimistic in the early days of the viral pandemic. Yes, you you were a beam of sunshine in April. Mm-hmm. But when you go back and you look at the roster of people that they signed up to do this, I do wonder whether or not a slower, steadier build would have been smarter for this. And I, I know that that's not really the way people do things anymore where they say, okay, we got like two or three shows and we're going to work on those shows being really good. And then we're going to spend a lot of time developing and basically creating a, uh, both watching habits and also teaching people how to make stuff that's optimized for this. And by all accounts, there Mm -hmm. was really not a lot of, of a development process or a lot of like dialogue happening from Quibi. And I, I should say, like I sang the thing in the beginning and I'm, we're, we're having a little bit of fun at the Quibi's expense. It sucks that all these people are going to be losing their jobs in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm not like, I'm not gloating about that at all. If anything, I was like, give me more stuff to watch. I'm happy to, if it's good, but I don't feel like the Quibi stuff was ever, ever distinguished itself. Yeah. And I think that probably if, if during the, there will be more postmortems written about Quibi than there were articles written about the, you know, the actual content on Quibi, which is, as you said, it's, it feels kind of cruel, even as we're hopefully and fair-mindedly taking part in it. It was an almost impossible mission that they set for themselves because while at the same time that they were trying to seed content and grow shows and, you know, establish a point of view, they were also trying to become, they're also a technology company trying to sell an app. Mm -hmm. And it's almost impossible to do both. And had Jeffrey Katzenberg gone to, and maybe he did, we don't, you know, other people may have written this or maybe it hasn't been revealed yet. But if he had gone to Reed Hastings and Netflix and said, like, let me develop something for you and with you to see if we can build a new way of telling stories um, that takes advantage of mobile, but you, they could also watch it on their TVs or whatever through your app. But we're gonna we're gonna be the we're gonna be the micro studio inside of Netflix Studios that does eleven minute shows or whatever and takes chances. I think that they would have had a, a bigger chance of success. But I think the appeal of you know, being owning the whole thing, basically, yeah. like being being Apple, being hardware and software, uh, in this case, just being a completely new player was just too appealing to people with the resumes and the egos like the yeah. size of Katzenberg. And also flooding their own platform with a lot of, I think, arguably, I, I would say, like, to put it politely, like average programming content that didn't actually have a point of view. I mean, it was just a lot of uh, reality stuff, a lot of kind of variety show, game show stuff. Um, a lot of stuff where if you read it, you were kind of, I think somebody's, people have made this joke before, but like a lot of Quibi shows feel like they were 30 Rock jokes. You know, like it, it, that idea that um, 
that they, they just feel like the stuff that couldn't get sold elsewhere or the stuff that was just like scribbled on a back of a napkin before walking into a meeting or they're like, what do you got? And they're like, how about this? Look, I mean, and, and, and people I say love this, sneakers and people love Chance the Rapper. <laughs> like, let's do it. When the streetlights go on was a pilot mm-hmm. that was made for Hulu and it was not it did not go to series. And then when Quibi came calling anonymous content and the people involved in the show very smartly were like, we can do this. We can re-break what we did and give it to you this way. This was an opportunity for people to, you know, get one last swing at projects that hadn't gone in more traditional formats. And there's no shame in that. That's awesome. There, I, you know, the more places buying means the more things that sell. Yeah. And from a creative perspective, that's really, um, that's really appealing. But one thing that I wonder, and I don't think we could extrapolate too much from just the Quibi uh, scenario, but the the operating assumption that a lot of us have had for a long time that may be, may be quite out of date is that all it takes is one show to be the killer app for um, a service mm-hmm. or a channel. And, you know, you point to what AMC did with um, Mad Men and Breaking Bad and then The Walking Dead. Obviously, that was an unprecedented run. But any one of those was kind of a, oh, this isn't just a channel to watch The Godfather Part Two on a Sunday afternoon anymore. Now this is a destination and we have to yeah. pay attention to it. Yeah. And we've talked about how Apple, when they got into the t- programming, like they certainly have the budget to just keep throwing high price things out there until someone's like, that's what Apple does. That's the type of show that I want to check them out for. Weirdly, it may end up being Ted Lasso, considering the way everyone... <laughs> other than me, is talking about it. That's yeah. not what they expect no, at right. all. No, you're right. You're right. Um, but the reason I bring this up, though, is, is this outdated thinking? Because I, I don't, I know, I think that the idea of a show ha- that people like has become so profoundly decoupled from the delivery system you got it in that I don't know if that's still the right way to think about building a brand or even if building a brand like that is possible anymore. So you look at something like you, that show that was a lifetime original that got, you know, interested reviews, but tanked in the ratings, Netflix picked it up and it became a sensation for Netflix. I don't think Lifetime is enjoying the bounce from that necessarily. I mean, I doubt that even, I mean, think about how Shit's Creek is thought of as a Netflix show, a, a show that was it, just awarded, they swept the comedy Emmys. Mm-hmm. It's a pop TV show. It's a, a Canadian broadcasting show but is thought of largely as a Netflix show. And when Netflix put up the sixth season, it was like, Shit's Creek, the season just dropped. But that season had already dropped. It had already been available. But when exactly. it's only real when and, Netflix puts it up. And as another example, I would say that Halt and Catch Fire, a really mm-hmm. excellent show that was undercovered by everyone, including us on this podcast, was considered to be ultimately, I think, an admirable near-miss They committed to it. People loved it, but it didn't continue or pick up the mantle of AMC's success with prestige dramas the way they had intended it to. Now to hit on Netflix, it's done. You know, it's not coming back. They're not resurrecting it. AMC is like, the programming executives must be like, we always believed in the show and we're happy for the stars and creators, but they're not getting a piece of that. You know what I mean? Like that's not their success anymore. It becomes Netflix's success. And that is great for Netflix, but it's but it's one of the reasons, if if only a small one anecdotally, why AMC is probably going to be for sale, right? Because like right. they they I mean the Breaking Bad movie was on Netflix first. 
you know, the, the, the days of being able to reap the benefit of your good development might be behind us. And that's, that's part of what accelerated Quibi's demise. Like even if, if, if something good came from Quibi, if there's a show, whether it's the Chrissy Teigen thing or whatever, it'll live on. Yeah. Someone else is going to pick it up and it'll be an afterthought that it was part of this failed launch. I think that the, to go back to the original kernel of your question there, which was, is a, is a breakout show enough to break a platform, to break a platform out? I think we have to have that conversation in like a year or so about Peacock mm-hmm. and Max and, and some yes. of the other more recent and yes, Apple TV right. and those things. I mean, I think Netflix did its earnings call and subscribers. Chris, were, you, were, you, were you on that call? Was I on Netflix's earnings call? Yeah. Did you listen in on that? <laughs> I did not. Did you? You didn't? No, I just, you know, you're, you're, you're in the town. You know what I mean? I don't Maybe need you... to. I have my Bloomberg ter- terminal right to my, the left of my laptop. Is that I'm the just, sound I'm, shattering? And yeah. I could just feel it going up and down. Their subscribers, obviously, like their subscriber base went up, but not as far up as they had sort of hoped or projected. And so they got dinged a little bit. Stock price wise, I think they've had an incredible amount of turmoil in the executive level. And there was a lot of discussion about that. But they have their steady drumbeat of shows that's going to continue. I mean, like a lot of the stuff this week, there was a few Shonda Rhimes pieces, or there was a Shonda Rhimes piece, a big Mm -hmm. one. Uh, from Lacey Rose that was about her move from ABC to Netflix. And they were they asked her about, uh, well, how do you feel about the, all the change, the, the turnover and the executive level at Netflix? And she was like, I specifically came here not to get notes. So as long as that continues, I don't really care who works here. And I'm, you know, I'm, that's my version of that quote, but that was essentially By the way, that, that, that was my conversation with Bill when he was putting up the ringer. <laughs> Is it? When I, when I was briefly a podcasting free agent, I was like, look, <laughs> I just want two things. I want no notes and I want tickets to Disneyland. And he was like, I'll do the first one. And I was like, done. I'm very bad at business. <laughs> That's because I have to synthesize all the notes from him <laughs> and then incept you. Um, anyway, your point being, can a show make a platform? I think we'll have to wait for a little while to see. It'll be um, a huge test of that will be something like the Game of Thrones prequel on Max and whether that, if it's good, especially inflates Max's subscriber base to, I don't know, levels Notice that, you're calling it a Max show, even though it's an HBO show. Well, it's I guess like, I'm just trying to go with the flow, man. I mean, this is right. what it is. I would, it's your, your question about the stuff that was in the, the sort of the archives or in development over Quibi, I took a look at a list that the New York Times put out when Quibi first launched. Oh, the and failing New York Times? The fa- okay, this, this ought to be good. <laughs> and uh, it had, it was basically like the entire roster announcement of stuff that was just being developed. I, I Honestly, it's a testament to kind of the heart, the difficulty of, of, of seeing through the f- fog with Quibi that I'm not even sure if some of this stuff actually did ever air. But, you know, I was looking for stuff that I was like, oh, I hope this pops up somewhere else or this would have been cool. I would have checked this out. I personally really came up with three. I checked out when the streetlights go on and I just definitely felt like it should have been, I would have just been happy to watch that on Hulu or, or mm-hmm. I, w- I wish that had been a regular show. Um, there was a Laura Dern one act play series from Nick Hornby where she plays a, a bartender who talks to people called uh, Just One Drink, which I thought, sure. You know? I feel like that would do very well now. Except yeah. for the part about it only being one drink. Everything else is just what I would like during a pandemic. I'd love for to have Laura a Dern to serve you a, a drink. Yeah. I mean, like, can you imagine? Chris, um, not to humble brag, but Laura Dern, a lovely person. Just lovely. <laughs> I really felt like we connected during the brief moments when I had her on stage for the Twin Peaks for your was consideration she cool? panel. 
She was so cool. She was. So the she, legends she are true. Did she direct address? Did she, was she like, Andy, that's a great question? She said, Andy, I think you're great. You're terrific, Andy. Did How's she Chris? <laughs> no, I don't know. She was just, she, I, I talked about this in the podcast, but I, that was like a dream come true because I had Lynch and Kyle McLaughlin and, and Laura Dern and they were totally dreamy. She was so cool. And they, they just fucking love David Lynch so much that they were like big fans and it was, it was great. That's so awesome. yes, I'd, yes. Hollywood Andy would that. watch her Quippy show. You would have watched When the Streetlights Go On. And then there was a Jed Mercurio show who did Bodyguard um, called Transmissions, which was about a scientist who was getting messages from deep space, which was that I just, I just the like guy Jed from, Mercurio stuff. Was that the guy from Bodyguard singing Danny Boy at the beginning of this podcast? <laughs> I thought so. I thought so. Mick. Um, I, I want to get to Third Day, which we finished, but I want to just talk a little director bullshit before we get there. Is there anything else on Quibi you wanted to talk about? Yeah, just to pick up two two last threads before we're done. One, what now for Katzenberg? With her Katzenberg? <laughs> are you worried about Jeff? Oh, JK, JK. What are we going to do? Um, I do want to talk about him. I Quickly, you mentioned executive upheaval at Netflix, which is absolutely the case. Um, executive upheaval Everywhere here is the word of the day and the talk the talk of the town. Yeah. It's Tell me super, more, Army Archer. It's, it's super dramatic, um, but what any of it means it remains to be seen. But in short order, the top jobs at some of the major places have changed in pretty dramatic ways. You mentioned that um, Cindy Holland mm-hmm. was re- let go from Netflix after basically building its original series and Bella Bajaria was promoted the head of comedy there is rumored to be leaving. And Channing Dungey, who used to run ABC, the network, and was had been at Netflix for a relatively brief time, just left to take over Warner Brothers Studio, where Peter Roth, who had been in charge of it at, when it was the most successful studio in the history of television for 22 years, stepped aside so she could take over that studio. The Channing Dungey taking over was a surprise because there was a woman named Susan Rovner, who had been number two for almost as long as Peter Roth had been in charge, who just before this announcement was made left to take over NBC Universal Networks? Hmm. Um, basically, uh, now in charge of Peacock, Chris McCumber, who's in charge of USA, left, and uh, a lot of consolidation and changing the job of the guard. We already talked about the changes at HBO Max and Casey Ploys' consolidation of power. I have no comment really on any of this on the merits or substance because I don't know any of these people really. Uh, obviously, I'm under contract at. Universal through the studio. So that affects me in some way, but I haven't met Susan or Perlina who took over the studios there. But I, I think that they're the only two things to be aware of, or maybe it's really just one thing, which mm. is we can try to read the tea leaves of earnings calls and we can pour over Joe Adalian's buffering column like it's your Bloomberg terminal. Uh, but I don't think it's possible to say yay or nay if these any of these launches have been successful. I don't think we know. I don't, yeah. we can say, oh, Netflix's earnings call is this, or HBO Max is reporting this. We don't know what any of that means internally. But what we do know is all these places made changes. And whether they were in response to something that they were unhappy about, or whether they are basically using this enforced pause on life and the economy as an attempt to like arm themselves for the wars to come, TBD. But there will be big changes in all of these big brands that we won't actually see in the product for another year and a half. Yeah, they also aren't all trying to do the same thing. You know, Probably Apple TV smart. is not the same as HBO Max, is not the same as Peacock. 
And while the streaming business is increasingly becoming the primary focus of a lot of these huge media companies, they're not the only thing. So when you talk about Disney's success, you talk about Disney Plus's success, the parks are still in trouble, you know? Like there's still like so there's there is a lot of diversity to their business and it's important to consider how there might be a trickle down or domino effect. Do you know why they're not in trouble? Why it would have been in worse trouble? In trouble? Yeah, if they had been given away passes to Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> so I know the media story is that like Disney fucked up in epic proportions because Shonda told Hollywood Reporter that the final straw for her and why she left ABC, her home of 17 years or whatever, was because she called and was like, can my sister have a pass to the parks? And they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't do that for just anybody. And she was like, get me on the phone with Netflix right can, now. Can we be can- I, Let's I, be a little bit candid right now. You and I were both formerly Disney employees when we worked at Grantland. Did you get a Disney pass? Yes. Yeah, so did I. Never used it. She wanted an extra one. It didn't seem like that was the hardest thing to come by. I I don't don't ever remember asking for an extra one or getting like mad passes, but like they weren't like, here's your Disney pass. If you fucking lose this, just don't even come to work the next day. I I remember a couple things. I remember them saying, you can go to the Disney parks. I never did. I didn't have yeah. children yet. Now I wish that I had done that. Two, they were like, you can also enter this lottery or whatever, and you could go on a Disney cruise. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you about the one executive who went on the Disney cruise and availed himself of the open bars on the cruise and maybe did something untoward in a goofy mask. Don't be that guy. Like the whole onboarding was basically like the legend of the guy who's lost his career on a Disney cruise. You mean anyway, it sound like it's Cousin Greg in succession? <laughs> it kind of was like that. Or at least that's what they were threatening us with. I'll also say, I always felt very fairly recompensed on my during my time as a Disney cast member through the <laughs> Grantland organization. Yeah. And I don't think it would have been the worst thing to buy a ticket or an additional ticket Disney World. Far be it from me to tell the creator of Grey's Anatomy, who makes $100 million a year without blinking, how she should expend her energies. Well, here's the fortune. thing is that but, if you, if we want to get into this, I can understand the frustration because I think it was supposed to be, this is all taken care of. You know, your, your family member is right. going to show up at Disneyland and it's going to be all set. And when she got there, it didn't work. And then when she called and was like, let's make this happen. They oh, so were that's like, literally like, that's literally a, this doesn't sound like a me problem. This sounds like a you problem. Yeah, but it's That like, was one of those. But it was definitely, like, also, like, that's a pain in the ass to drive to Anaheim and find out that it was for nothing. And if you make Grey's Anatomy and Scandal, you feel like I, there's got to be a bat phone somewhere where I can just make Mickey hits the button and my kids, these kids get I, into Disneyland. I agree. I also feel like it can't really have been, that makes good copy. That can't really have been the reason. The only reason? That's, you know what I mean? It rules if that's the reason. I'm trying to it think about kind of what? of rules? I just feel like on some level, I, I, I guess I'm of two minds. Because whatever Shonda Rhimes was paid, I love that we're talking about this, and I still want to talk about Katzenberg for a second. This is all about all about billionaires today. No matter what <laughs> Shonda Rhimes was paid. Club. Billionaire Boys Club, that's what we're doing. We're, we're just, we just want to be members. <laughs> whatever she was paid at ABC, no matter how much it was, and maybe it was, $10 million a year. Maybe it was $20 million a year. I don't know. It was not enough. It was, oh. she was underpaid no matter what because her, the shows that she created made billion dollar revenues for them, right? So that is just a fact. And when that's the case and no matter what you're paid, you are essentially underpaid 
little things like that matter. Yeah. It's just annoying. I agree yeah. with that. That said, part of my mind goes to the fact that with that much money, even if it's not enough, and you have like three assistants, and they're dealing with the person who's making 30 grand a year dealing with like parks requests, you could buy a ticket. You know what I mean? Like they sell the tickets at the park. It's an, I, I would love to hear what our listeners have you to say. You slap it on that. the card. Okay, last thing. <laughs> JK, um, cats. Just, what's, what I next? just want to say, I, I just want to salute a legend. I really do, because the thing about Quibi, and I know people are laughing and there's some funny headlines or tweets or whatever, but regardless, the deference to this dude and his past success and his swagger and ego is so enormous that he's essentially being allowed to, a couple jokes here and there, but he's being allowed to write his own obituary for this company, right? Like, they are all going with the line he put forward, which is twofold. One, we had enough money to keep going, but as good, prudent business people, we felt it was best not to continue to well, throw bad money futile. after good. I mean, they were gonna run out of money. They could have Two, just kept it going for a few more months. Right. Two, he's like, who knows what conversation we would have been having had we not launched this into the middle of a pandemic? And it's like, okay, that's the thing he tried when they launched and it was immediately not a hit. I just think- here's That's what, what I tell it, myself when I see that I've gained like seven pounds. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just like, who okay, knows? Okay. Who I, I guess say? what I'm saying is, I'm, I'm Mr. Anti-Conventional Wisdom on both these things. I feel like Shonda Rhimes should have bought a Disney World ticket. Okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, media. Okay, town. Here I am. Come at me, Jackie Harvey, outside view. And I think that Katzenberg's getting off easy. I know people are I know people are dunking a little bit, but they're like not disrespectful backboard shattering dunks, which honestly this I, might de- I definitely I do not think that there has been a sincere what we could have had. Here's a here pour one out for Katzenberg. Who Everybody's tried. like, well, he says this and that. They're being very deferential. Well, I guess if you're really to splash the pot like that, you don't want to make an enemy out of him, you know? Kaya, bring Jeff into the chat. No, he's been you know listening Kaya, this whole time. Kaya, who's just a Quibi Google alert on all year and can <laughs> finally take it off. Kaya hit me to the fact that at the announcement that um that they were going to be closing Quibi down, Kaya got it this. Was from, Ka- Kaya from did. Business, Kaya, they had Kaya come in to do it. No, Katzenberg told employees to listen to the song "Get Back Up Again" from the movie Trolls because it would lift their spirits. Oh my god! Have you seen Trolls? I'm glad you brought this up. Chris, the trolls have invaded my household. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Can, are, you, are you up for a quick dispatch from Daddington Island? Because it's a lonely place. Yeah, we should do Daddington Island before we do director bullshit. And, okay. uh, I just, just want to say, I don't think people, we've touched on this over, over the last few years and where Chris and I are always commenting, you know, often with some, some chuckles about how there is no dead IP, that everything can be turned into something. And like there's the... You know, I, we, we would joke about a friend of ours was pitching on the Nickelodeon animated universe movie and all this stuff. But I still think sometimes it's worth pausing to say that there is a successful film franchise based on creatures that were on the tops of pencils when we were children. They were? Like little rubber toys with hair that went straight up. Those were trolls. They have been turned into a successful franchise that's main storytelling engine is hoovering up all of the popular songs of the last 40 years and then vomiting at them out of the mouths of cartoons. <laughs> it's so 
fucking bankrupt and crazy. But it, like also, like, do they do like one thing by Amory or something? Like what songs yes. do they do? <laughs> My three-year-old was singing One More Time by Daft Punk at dinner the other night. But the Trolls and version. What ver- What does this do to hip dad number one over here? Do I say, you know, that's a terrific song that was uh, created by a French duo of DJs best known for wearing robot masks. Did you say, did you go to that Brooklyn show? The Daft Punk one at the, at the, uh, the minor yeah. league baseball field? When they had the, the pyramid? No, I didn't. Yeah. Did you? No. This, this is a great new segment. Hey, Chris, you do that fun thing? Nah. nah I stayed in <laughs> a long baseball. time ago. Um, there's also now a divide in my household that I'm not sure how to bridge where my older daughter, it, it worked, right? She's like, I love this song. And I was like, oh, okay, let me show you something. Here's the video, Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper, who's a cool singer and feminist icon. And like now she's super, and look at her fashion and she's super into it. My younger daughter got furious and burst into tears when we put on Girls Just Want to Have Fun because it's not right. She's not Because troll. she wants to hear trolls just want to have fun. So what are you going to do? Let me tell you something. Let me speak directly to my to our army of Russian meme bots. You trolls do not just want to have fun. You are here to subvert our democracy. What's the uh, what's the lifespan of this fad in your household? Do you think? Well, how much longer you got? I I was cheered when the TV returned to the Descendants movies, which we spoke about in a previous one. Like I was glad that was back in the mix. That that might be a more enduring enduring fixture because this. This trolls thing is really worrisome. Okay, back, back, back to life, back to reality. I want to talk a little bit about some of the Marvel TV shows, and I want to talk third day. But let's take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. I, I gotta collect myself. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season: your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy, and right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need. 
have coverage options to protect the things you value most. File a claim right on the State Farm mobile app and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Andy, uh, I just wanted to say, because you know we have a recurring segment on this. We, we've, we've had many... The streets are littered with the recurring segments that we have had and then abandoned on this podcast. When the streetlights went on, they revealed the corpses of all of our recurring bits. Who won the week and all the pod, all the little bits that we used to do on this pod. Mm. Now it's just pure friendship. It's just pure, it's pure discourse. But one thing that we return to over and over again is director bullshit. For people not aware, this is yeah. something that I credit to Sam Donsky, who used to work for The Ringer and, and, and is out there out there on, on Twitter if you're lucky enough to follow him. And you know, he and I would often trade interview segments from uh, s- superhero movie and TV creators, directors, writers, where early enough in the development and or production process, they still had that, that bright look in their eye. And they could say mm-hmm. with a straight face that uh, my take on Doctor Strange combines a little bit of eyes wide shut a little bit of Suspiria, you know? Like, Roman Polanski is the tenant. Yeah, you know, and then also just a lot of early Joseph Conrad's early English works, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. just that 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 fresh off the off the boat. Fresh off and the Nostromo. Yeah. And, and yeah. And then eventually it's just Doctor Strange. You know what I mean? I want to shout out Derek Kolstadt for a second though, because he's he's a um a guy who's he's worked on a bunch of um a bunch of, of Marvel stuff before and he's the primary writer of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Falcon and Winter Soldier, which is the, you know, the Captain America spinoff with Sebastian Stan and uh, Anthony Mackie. And a lot, a lot of people throw a lot of stuff at us. You know, they throw a lot of references. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of like Coppola's The Conversation and maybe a little Three Days of the Condor. Um, you know, some, some of the documentaries about Algeria in the 60s that I've seen on Criterion Channel. And then it's, it just looks like it's shot in Atlanta and it's about two guys wearing mock turtlenecks and hats with no logos um, wrestling. This is what Colstad said about Falcon the Winter Soldier. What I will say is that there are characters from the earliest Marvel movies that are coming back. We're layering them in and reinventing them in a way that's going to shift the tor- storytelling structure. It's fucking awesome. Here's what I'll say. Growing up, everyone would give someone like Robin shit. But Robin's pretty badass and became pretty badass in the comics. We're taking secondary characters and putting them in primary roles. And as a result, they are cooler. They're more interesting. There's more humanity, more longing, more suffering, and coming to grips with who and what they are. It's incredible. Derek, you did it, man. You got through it without mentioning Ernst Lubitsch. You didn't mention Bertolucci. You didn't mention early John Woo. You did it, man. You just said, I'm making superhero stuff. Leave me alone. He didn't mention Captain America either. That's the beauty of it. Two things stand out to me. One, what won't he say? (laughs) Desperate to find out what he won't say off the record. Or maybe in a couple years, we can revisit this for the Criterion Collection edition. Two, I just, and I mean this sincerely, like, to work in any field, this is true, but I, I very much feel this way about working in the creative field or in Hollywood, you really have to buy in. 
you have to care about what you're doing and you have to love what you're doing. And that it really matters. And for the most part, I think people do. Bad stuff doesn't come from a lack of passion for the project. Um, you know, nobody sets out to make anything bad and this show might end up being good. But the, but the, the very specific, I think bronze is prettier than gold anyway, energy coming off of this Olympic yeah. platform is chef's kiss. I love it. It's like, you know what? So, I don't want the characters people like. Let's do it. Let's go. I also want to just say a lot of these Marvel films and DC films, but specifically the Marvel ones, always have this drumbeat of like, it's actually a 70s conspiracy thriller. Mm-hmm. And it's not. I, I, I assure you, <laughs> you, you can just watch the 70s conspiracy thriller and see a lot of really marked differences between the two things. I like that he's like, it's fucking Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yes. That's the influence is my boy Sebastian and my boy Tony Mackey. And we're going to get swole and we're going to solve some crimes and go on some adventures. I kind of am like, I appreciate you for leveling with me, man. You don't have to make, it doesn't have to be umbrellas of Cherbourg, man. It can just be Falcon and Winter Soldier. Let's just be honest here because I was thinking about this the other day. Like every superhero movie, whether it's made by Christopher Nolan or it's made by guy who made Shazam. Apologies. I don't have the IMDb open in front of me. All of them come laden with was, some uh, like Eric Romer, by the way, did a Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess I prefer his early work. Shazam. How do you, how do you say it in <laughs> French accent? Um what what, what do they call Shazam in French? Shazam. No, because no, you know what it is? I, it's like my favorite thing. We talked about this, is like in Borgen where they're just doing yeah, just speaking Danish, and then then they'll be like, "But that's just business," because <laughs> they, they don't have a translation for Danish, the Danish, Danish, spin doctor, Danish, yeah. Danish, Danish. Yeah. So, um, oh, I have, I, I got an answer to my Danish and Danish, Danish and Denmark question. But just to say, all these movies come laden with like this pre-apology where you're like, "But what this really is is this, right?" And this is the root of the of the director bullshit conversation. And I have to be honest with you. I have never gotten anything ulterior out of a superhero movie in my life. And I've been seeing superhero movies since they started making them, and I've seen most of them. And there is not a single one of them. I think even up to ones that try very hard for subtext, like The Boys, that has taught me anything about the world that I live in. A single thing. Ever. It hasn't made me think about things a different way. I love X-Men. But I yeah. would not say that X-Men taught me how to be weird or taught me it was okay to be weird. No, you know? and I and and The Dark Knight is a classic film, but it didn't change my deeply held beliefs about the surveillance state. You know what I mean? Like it's cool. <laughs> the the movie that I love talking about and it's become it's become a joke, but like that French movie Summer uh, not Summer House, the French movie Nonfiction. Yeah. Like there were more ideas in 30 seconds of it in the beginning when they're talking about ebooks than in all three hours of Endgame. I fucking loved Endgame. It brought me great joy. But come on. Like, I know. I, I would know. go a step further and tell Derek, you can, you can lop this last sentence off, man. There's <laughs> yes. more humanity, more longing, more suffering, and more coming to grips with who and what they are. I'm good. I'm they good. know who they are. Yeah. And it's not, it's not actual, like, I, 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 I dare say, you don't, I don't, the suffering, I'm good. You can but it, leave it, it in the real world. Also, if I remember correctly, Winter Soldier had a pretty rough 35-year run as a brainwashed prisoner of the Soviet yes. state. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, let him let him just chill. He was a, like a Hydra assassin, right? 
for the for the for the Ruskies. Oh, you know what I mean? So Hydra operated independent of like the Nazis and the Russians, right? Oh, Chris. Chris. You beautiful, you beautiful bastard. (laughs) We're gonna have to do this on a different podcast. I'm afraid. I just wanted to shout out Derek. Man, come on the pod. Let's let's wrap. Let's chop it up. Here's what I respect most out of John Favreau and Dave Filoni and the Mandalorian crew. Like, I've never. I don't think I've heard a single interview with them where they were like. The loneliness of the Mandalorian is a metaphor for the loneliness of the working class person in a world that devalues unions. You know, like the reason why it made no sense for the Mandalorian to be nominated for best drama series is it's just like they're they're not even doing that, man. The only drama just like is like sh- keep that goddamn Yoda alive. Just hang out with a baby, and there's not even any drama because I'm sorry, watch listeners, the baby's not getting killed. You know what I mean? Like a, the baby's gonna be fine. That's a great, it's, great, great segue to talk about the third day. <laughs> oh God! So okay. I want everybody to know we're we're however long into this podcast, years wise, but also minutes wise today. So I can be mm-hmm. candid with people. You know, I, yeah. I think that everyone wants more Andy. We want more of Andy's <laughs> takes on shows. We want Andy crushing more tape. And we started the third day, and we were we were high on it. And mm-hmm. I, I talked to Catherine Waterston. I thought the first episode is one of the best things to see this year. I stuck with it. I'm, I'm still into it. I watched snippets of the 12-hour play that they put up on Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. Andy fell a little bit behind, as you know. As some maybe you remember from a few episodes ago, and Andy was like, I think I'm tapping out. And I was like, well, here's the deal. The Naomi Harris character is Jude Law's we're spoiling character. It. Yeah, we're spoiling we're it. Spoiling. The show's over. And you were like, okay, I'll go back into it. I watched the finale before you and I texted you as a friend and I said, sir, I don't think you need to watch this. I don't think it's going to upset you. Uh, I don't think you didn't say that. I did. I did. What you said was the kids are fine. (laughs) You were trying to make me feel, I think, safer about engaging because you knew. No, 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 no. The children in peril. I said, you don't need to watch this. What Chris is building to here is a confrontation that I think we need to have on Mike, which is that I don't think Uncle Uncle Chris can babysit anymore. <laughs> because my main impediment to watching the rest of this series was I just can't roll with this island where murderous, crazy cult things happen and there are these two lovely children in the middle of it. In Who peril. have been abandoned th- by their mother. And, well, For most and father. Yeah. And ba- abandoned of, by no. their father previously and on the island their, father, left their mother them. Yeah. brings them to the island because she thinks it's better to have them with her than with their apparently god-fearing grandmother who mm-hmm. just wanted to take them to bible study back in london mm-hmm. she brings them to this island to find jude law's sam character and almost immediately is like starts doing the like stay over here you Wait watch here. your sister while i go do something else for mm-hmm. the rest of the episode and yeah i mean i i I don't even do that when the doors are locked in my home. I turn to the Apple television and I say, Trolls World Tour, watch them. Because I know that that movie will keep them in one place more than the older one will keep the younger one. But so I think that as a friend- the opening chords of Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb starts, but it's Comfortably Trolls. It's, it's yeah, oh, we should, if you'd give me a little more runway, I could have nailed it. I'll come back. It'll be good. Um, but I think as a friend, Chris was like, you can safely finish out this show because the kids are fine. And I would uh, like to enter into the permanent record that Chris's definition of fine differs slightly from my own because while the girls do survive their time 
on OC. They do bear witness to numerous stabbings, someone getting hit in the head with a hammer, and the slow descent of their father into a homicidal rage maniac, um, which, you know, will leave a mark. It will leave a mark. So, I, 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 my own snowflake tendencies aside, this was a fascinating test case. I am glad I finished it. I think it's also interesting. I think we have a pretty good track record on this show when talking about show series. Might want to mulligan on this one. Um, only because I did, and I think you just alluded to it, we loved the first episode. I mean, it was totally thrilling. And I still really admire the ambition of this of this project. I also like the second one, yeah. And I like the first but, Naomi Harris one, yeah. But I, I don't think it worked. And and it's a, it's a challenging thing to talk about because, you know, look, these are all artists involved and, and theater artists are, you know, are, are actors like Jude Law and Naomi Harris and, and Paul Kay and Catherine Waterston, like people who I think do this for the right reasons and give it their all and try stuff and better noble failure, right? Than a more cynical yeah. success a hundred times out of a hundred. But I do think we have to reckon with that. I think maybe we have, we come at it slightly differently, but ultimately I just think, I, I think it didn't work. And I, and I kind of want to talk about why why that may have been. Yeah, so I, I think I had a, a longer runway with this show than Andy did, but wound up in the same place for different reasons, which was, you know, while I, I felt manipulated by the peril that the kids were being put in, it was more offensive to me that it just didn't make storytelling sense. And I think that for folks who have watched it, I, it's not that big of a deal to say that in the final episodes, Catherine Waterston's character, Jess, emerges as at least the antagonist, if not the villain of the of the piece. And that was not made clear over the course of the season of the show. And I can only assume that nestled somewhere in the 12-hour experiential theater piece that they broadcast on Facebook is some explanation as to why Jess is become the, this, the, the evil queen of, of OC. Um, I think I, you know, she she suggests obviously that she just has a clearer idea about what OC needs and that OC's ecological health is central to the health of the world and that the degradation of that place is also why the world itself is dying. That's just stuff that I'm gleaning from often repeated motifs in the dialogue. But I, I just found it honestly like to be patchwork at the end where you're just like, I don't understand why this is any of this stuff is happening. The stuff with Naomi Harris constantly abandoning her children to go on these little side quests was, I think, something that I find to be chronically wrong in lots of shows, which is quest-based storytelling that doesn't actually speak to any kind of character values. If Naomi Harris is, in fact, someone who doesn't really care about the lives of her two children, even though she has come all the way to this island with them to find a bag of money to pay her mortgage because she's otherwise financially in trouble. Um, I don't know. Investigate that. Investigate why she might be the kind of person mm -hmm. who's like, I don't, I'm too blinded by grief and um, the pressing mystery of what happened to my husband and my son to be a present mother for the two people that I've brought with me. But it actually just doesn't do anything but make the viewer feel uneasy because two kids are being constantly put into harm's way. And it's just cheap. You know, and I, I, I thought like I thought higher of this show. I thought this show is better than that. It speaks to a much larger thing, which is 
something that you and I have been kicking around for the last couple of weeks about the way these shows are being, are being told. And especially, I, I feel it when it's these six to eight, nine episode, possibly limited run seasons of uh, shows that obviously have drawn a lot of talent because it's a limited engagement, because it's not like Jude Law needs to sign up mm-hmm. for five years of playing Sam and wear that wig. I think it just would have been a better show if it had been a two or three season show. I think it would have been a better show if it had been a 10 episode season and we would have explained all the things that are kind of brushed aside in the show. I think could have been actually interrogated and talked about and all the style over substance that the show kind of gets subsumed by would have been okay if spread out across an arc. People should make television shows because they want to tell a story. It can be a mystery story, but I don't think people should make television shows because they want to lead a breadcrumb trail. And that's ultimately how I'm feeling with a lot of shows now, which is that every episode is just this incremental reveal of a mystery that seems pretty obvious, actually. And it's not just about like, hey, we found a bunch of interesting characters in an interesting place and we want to tell you a cool story about them. Chris, you beautiful bastard. (laughs) You're exactly right. I'm back! Could not have expressed any of that any better. I kind of have a two-part diagnosis. And the second part is dovetails really nicely with what you said. The first, my first criticism is you got to, you got to crack some jokes. You can't pull this off with this level of dread and intensity and self-seriousness and imagery and blood and guts and, and just inundate us with it. It, I guess that was the Emily Watson character, but I still don't know why she was the way she was. We don't know anything about them, really, because their motivations changed by the hour in a way that was ultimately frustrating. The bigger point that I wanted to make is exactly the point that you were making, which is I think that what makes discussing this show interesting and worthwhile in connection to the larger conversation we've been having is that Prestige TV clearly has a vessel problem. Things are being placed into the wrong-sized vessels, and the storytelling is suffering greatly because of it. This show wanted to do a number of things that are both interesting and potentially narratively compelling, if not emotionally satisfying. Clearly, they wanted to tell a mystery box story, and they wanted to tell a story about a a fictional place and uh, an almost cult-like deviation from traditional Christianity. They wanted to tell a horror story Mm -hmm. set on an island. They wanted to tell a story about legacies. They also wanted to tell just a horror story where someone can't is trapped and can't get away. They also, and I'm sympathetic to this, clearly wanted to tell a story about a deeply flawed man dealing with grief. Um, they wanted to tell a story about how much like that famous sketch on Human Giant where the mother runs a moving company and they move the heavy stuff by dropping it on a child and then the mother's able to lift the piano out of the house. They wanted to tell a story about how mothers are the strongest people in the world and will do anything for their children. There was, in the end, room for a satisfying amount of precisely zero of those stories. And in fact, it was so crowded and jammed up with its own, you know, um, the structure that it imposed on itself one show for three episodes, then another show, et cetera, that it was almost incoherent at times. So the revelation that in the in the last episode where Naomi Harris's character is like, uh, Sam, you're a cancer on this family. You've been behaving erratically. This is in line with how you've been. I don't want you back. Mm-hmm. P.S. This isn't even our son is a pretty powerful indictment. 
Yeah. But it's an indictment of someone we don't recognize because the hallmark of Mark Munden's directing, which I missed very much in the back three episodes, is a subjectivity so intense as to almost produce vertigo. Yeah. We are so deeply embedded in Jude Law's experience that the revelation that he's actually kind of an untrustworthy bastard is interesting. You can see them explaining that. We'll be so buried in his psyche that we don't understand the turn until it's too late that he's not the hero. There's something off about him for sure, yeah. But we're with him and we don't have anywhere else to go. And so we're never aligned with anyone, you know? And, and, and so these people in the background, like the guy that he shoots in the head with a shotgun at the end, is just kind of a menacing prick the whole time. Yeah. What any of, their, what any of them are doing this idea that the world is suffering because of what's happening in this island. You can tell me that five times an episode, but I'm not going to believe you with any real conviction, you know? And, and so ultimately, I think, and distressingly, every character feels like a chess piece. And I think that's kind of a vibe I was picking up on in the U.S. utopia that I think is grafted from the British utopias. This may be a hallmark of the type of stories Dennis Kelly wants to tell, and I respect the ambition and I respect the talent behind it. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, I, I didn't ever feel like these children who are so prominent in the final episodes were people. They were just pawns and chess pieces to react to things in order to accomplish the next goal, pick up the breadcrumb and move on. And as you said, Chris, to bring it all the way back, like, that's not how I want to engage with TV ultimately. And that's right. what made me feel, I think, not just um, disconnected from a show that I was initially very drawn into, but really disenchanted with it too. Well, I just think that like, you know, we've we've sung the praises of so many different elements of this show. Law, Waterston, the direction, the cinematography, the music, even just the premise, even just executing on something by sticking so close to someone's POV that you can't really tell what you're supposed to really think about a place. But um, it just felt, it really did feel like something that got left behind at the drawing board. It didn't ever feel like something that had um, a reason for being the way it was. And I, I, I applaud their, I really do deeply admire their vision for merging TV and cinema and theater. To, to say yeah, it, that there's going to be something that happens in the middle here. But the messaging was pretty clear that you didn't need to watch this to enjoy the rest of the show. And I disagree with that. I, I, don't, I, I haven't watched all of 12 hours. I don't plan to. But I don't think that people were well served by the fact that they see Sam at the end of episode five, I believe. Finally. Mm -hmm. And he's a different guy now but he's already gone through being the leader of OC and OC crumbling under his rule and just turning on him and just deciding that her child is should be the leader of the island. Only after she goes for an iPod walk listening to Florence and the Machine. And tries to kill herself. Right. I guess. But I then guess. is happy again. That right. was, I do, and then threatens another child with a knife. Um, last two things, just casting things, because I, I think that ultimately, for as much as we talk about the direction and the style, um, you know, actors will go for it. God bless them. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they, they are so committed and it's sometimes hard to see the commitment not be rewarded, you know, in the way that I feel ultimately this show, where it ended up. But I, do, I did want to just point out Nico Parker, who plays the elder daughter in the back three episodes, not just like totally eye-turning and like one of the best kid performers I've seen in a while because she's so completely 
guileless. She doesn't have that I am a kid performing thing. She just seems like an actor and was holding her own on the screen with Naomi Harris and Jude Law. Dandy Newton's daughter. We are now so deep into the HBO prestige TV cycle that the children of stars of HBO shows are in other shows. And I think she's (laughs) clearly bound for great things. Two, speaking of the theatrical thing in the middle, a character that apparently debuted during that was Paul Kay's character, like the cowboy. Mm-hmm. Paul Kay, from long-time Game listeners of Thrones, to the pod yeah. know, Thoros of Mir, one yeah. of my favorite performers on that show. The only pleasure that I truly got out of these back three episodes was when we see him for the second or third time in the first Naomi Harris episode, so episode four. He's sitting at the bar at the Oyster, and he, he gives a look towards Naomi Harris. And I said to my wife on the couch, McConaughey's fallen on hard times. <laughs> Not a great line, but enough by, by to yeah. but enough to continue to keep the balloon alive for at least another episode and a half that that was Matthew McConaughey. On your part or your wife's? I told her and she believed me. And I was like, <laughs> he's wearing a lot of makeup. He's very committed to this theater company. And he did it as a favor because he and Jude Law are friends. It didn't hold Does up. Does she like scrutiny. this kind of long-term japes you go on here? No, and to be fully transparent, she had left the couch by the time that I continued some of the things that I'm saying to you. But I think that I managed to keep it going for a good amount of time. Did you listen to McConaughey on WTF? Not yet. Just went up this morning. Yeah. How's he doing? He's doing great. He's talking about Benedictine monks in um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. First of all, great town. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I miss it. He misses um, it too. He likes it. Man, I mean, that that is one of those, every so often when WTF drops the new strain and you're like, that's a first day listen. He is, I, I would honestly watch a buddy comedy with these two. Is because Mark's neurosis and Mark's just like, I'm just a wandering Jew. What do I know about, about finding peace and happiness? Mm-hmm. And how come you have these post-it notes of affirmations mm-hmm. everywhere? And he's like, Mark, man. I got you, brother. <laughs> like he's just god. he's just like guiding him through it. It's amazing. Oh my god, I'm going to listen to that. I need I need you to play that role in my life. I got I need you, you to man. be just Yeah, just but now now you can't look after my children anymore. Like now I'm a little suspect. <laughs> like they're fine. They're fine. Um Did, we'll are back. they alive at the end of the night? Sure. Yes. Yes. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you to Kaya uh, for producing us as always. Please check out all of Kaya's very hard work that she's doing on the Bakari Seller Show. They're going up after the debate tonight. Uh, This pod will probably go up at some point right around then, but shout out to Kaya. She's the best. Uh, Kaya's the best. And I look forward to everyone joining us on Monday for part two of our Quibi What Went Wrong (laughs) conversation. I'll sing the second verse of Danny Boy. I can't wait. Bye. (laughs) 